Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Are regulations holding back the American economy, or are they protecting American consumers? And how should we regard innovators who try to bend these rules? Should we be concerned that companies like Uber and Airbnb skirted rules and regulations in order to succeed? Or should we hail their success at disrupting entrenched interests? I'm pleased to discuss these questions today with Adam Thier. Adam is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, where he focuses on public policy concerns surrounding emerging technologies. His latest book, released earlier this year, is Evasive Entrepreneurs and the Future of Governance, How Innovation Improves Economies and Governments. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. Is there an actual problem here that needs to be addressed? The technology sector and digital economy seems very lightly regulated. Uh, the sort of the most well-known uh, of the of sort of the newer tech companies, Airbnb, Uber, Lyft, sort of all got that way by sort of you know lightly evading rules and regulations and laws. So it seems like is this already happening? And as you well know. One of the critiques, at least in the technology sector, is that it's been too evasive. That they're that the entrepreneurs haven't followed enough rules, and and that we need to we need to sort of crack down as a society and figure out what these companies are doing. Is this the direction we want to go? And there need to be a lot more laws from everything from you know privacy to to other areas. So, what's the actual problem here? Well, that's a great question, Jim. And the, the problem is, is that we don't have enough spaces in our economy for permissionless innovation uh, or and the type of entrepreneurialism I discuss in my new book and my last book. And a lot of your previous guests, like my former colleague Eli Dorado and others, have discussed the problem of innovation in sectors where we need it most. How do we move the needle on progress in fields like healthcare, transportation, housing, energy, and so on? These are the areas that have sort of we've seen innovation stagnating a bit um, and we most need innovation in those sectors. Sure, we've gotten a lot of great, wonderful innovation in recent years in the digital economy, in e-commerce and in the world of uh, bits, if you will. But in the world of atoms, the physical world, uh, whether they're old or new sectors, we, we are still constrained by the so-called permission society, as Tim Sandifer calls it. And the permission society is limiting the entrepreneurial and creative potential of the American people to, new, to unleash their creativity and create new and better ways of doing things when we most need it, as the COVID crisis has proven. So, I, I, so I've sort of set you up nicely in my question by focusing uh, on, the, on the sectors of the economy in which this is probably less of an issue, uh, the digital economy. Sort of in the, the right. rest of it, the, the economy of atoms, uh, this does seem to be a problem. How long it has it been? I mean, has this always been the issue? Obviously, you didn't always have the digital economy. But in the United States, has it always been really, really hard uh, to innovate you know, in, in the sectors you just mentioned? Or is, there, is it somewhat more of a recent phenomenon? 
Um, it, it depends on the sector we're discussing, but clearly I would say since the 1970s onward, the sectors that we just discussed have grown increasingly encumbered by a whole host of federal, state, and local regulations that have constrained uh, new entry and entrepreneurial creativity. Whereas we've seen other sort of other uh, digital sectors and intangible service sectors who benefited from a lot more freedom. In the book, in my new book on evasive entrepreneurs, I talk about this in terms of what I call technologies or sectors that are, quote, born free versus born into captivity. And what I mean by that is that we have a whole heck of a lot of technologies today that we take advantage of and that we enjoy, specifically those emanating out of the internet and digital space, that we're lucky enough to be born free, born into a policy environment of permissionless innovation, and generally given the green light to go out and do things as they see it, saw fit. On the other hand, we have a whole bunch of other sectors like the ones we just uh, uh, discussed where they've been born into captivity. And any new technologies that come along that seem to resemble those old technologies or sectors are quickly pigeonholed into those regulatory regimes. So for example, drones come along and a regulator says, well, that's a flying thing and we've got aviation regulations or at least model aircraft rules, we'll just apply them to drones. Or along come driverless cars and people say, well, it's just a car, right? Oh, sure, it's a sort of computer on wheels, but we can just pigeonhole that into automotive regulations. And that's the real problem in our modern economy, is that the born free versus born captive problem is being exacerbated by technological change and convergence. And we have a collision course, if you will, uh, of uh, or on a collision course, if you will, between these regulatory regimes as the pace of technological change intensifies. I think a natural response is to say that a lot of these regulations, um, maybe, you know, their health, safety, maybe environmental regulations, that they're there for a reason. And, and to sort of suppose that we can sort of evade all these regulations and only have this fantastic upside of innovation uh, misses the downside. I mean, they're there, for, they're there for a reason, and they've been there for a reason for, you said, since the 70s, for, for, for a half a century. Doesn't, doesn't that argue, you know, is it, or at least isn't that a strong point in favor, in favor of the kind of regulatory approach uh, that we currently have? Well, in some ways it is. And uh, as I make very clear in the opening of the book, uh, my book is not a, some sort of a crypto anarchist manifesto. In fact, you'll be hard pressed to find a call in the book for many agencies or laws to be abolished. In fact, I spent a lot of time, especially in the later chapters, talking about how to improve regulatory regimes. Uh, much to the angst of some of my libertarian friends, I'm often trying to figure out how do we make the FDA work better or the FAA work better and the laws that they enforce. That being said, just because a rule or regulation or a regulatory regime is put in place with the best of intentions doesn't mean it actually des delivers good results. And uh, as one of my great heroes, Thomas Sowell, teaches us, you know, uh, well-intentioned uh, regulations and policies can only get you so far in, in life. You really have to measure these things by real-world outcomes and outputs. And in that regard, we have seen a lot of failure from our regulatory regimes. And the reason for this is pretty straightforward. We just never do a spring cleaning of the regulatory state. We just allow laws and regulations to accumulate endlessly and just pile one on top of another because of two problems identified in the book. Um, demosclerosis and then clodocracy. 
Dental sclerosis referring to the sort of chronic inability of lawmakers to adapt regulatory systems to modern technological realities. That phrase comes from Jonathan Rauch mm -hmm. at Brookings. And then kludgeocracy, Steve Tellis's term, talks about how when we need a fix to old rules that don't work, we just sort of kludge on, we just add on some other silly rule to have a, a, a temporary fix. So it's as if like all the plumbing in your home is going bad and there's holes everywhere and you're just putting duct tape over it as opposed to a fundamental rebuild or, or revision uh, of, the, of that underlying infrastructure. And that's the problem we have with laws in America today. Philip Howard uh, has done really great work on this, on the sort of death of common sense, and many other scholars have. It's, a, it's really, a, it's not a partisan thing. This is about good government. And the reason I identify in the book that evasive entrepreneurialism is on the rise is not because all of a sudden all these entrepreneurs are like, I've got to, I want to be John Galt. I want to be right out of an Ayn Rand novel. You know, no, they're like, I don't understand this system. It doesn't work. I'm just trying to get things done. Why can't I do them and help the world or help at least myself and my family? And that's why we're seeing evasive entrepreneurialism on the rise today. Um, to, to continue to push back just a little bit, uh, I think anyone reading you know, sort of reading about what's been happening in this country with the economy over decades. Uh, you know, if you read the New York Times or you know, maybe other major publications, you would think that we have been in the grips of, I guess, you know, call it neoliberalism or, or you know, I pick your own favorite phrase, uh, where we've had this, we've had, you know, big tax cuts and all this deregulation. And we're, li and we're living in this almost sort of, you know, for the last few decades in this sort of a libertarian society. And now is the time to sort of catch up, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's higher taxes or, or a lot more regulations in a, in, a, in a variety of sectors. But you're saying just that we, just the, just the opposite has been going on, that we've been living in sort of an overly uh, uh, regulated state. And that's had a real world impact on these sort of real world parts of the economy. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jim. And I can actually prove it, not just by resorting to evidence from uh, the economists I work with at the Mercatus Center or the many other scholars who have studied regulatory accumulation, but I can just point now to everything that's happened in the wake of the COVID outbreak and the lockdown. I mean, governments themselves at the federal, state, and local level in the United States have been waiving, shedding, or sunsetting rules at an astonishing pace. Uh, the folks over at Americans for Tax Reform have been trying to keep track of this, and they have a running list of, uh, uh, it's now I'm just looking at the site, it's uh, atr.org slash rules. They have a list of 626 regulations waived to help fight COVID-19. And it's just really amazing because governments have identified rules and regulations on their own. This is not, again, wild-eyed libertarian saying, you know, look at this. This is government saying our public health safety and regulations that were put in place to protect public health and welfare are undermining it, are hurting our response to COVID. So much so that all of these rules need to be paused and in some cases sunset. That's an astonishing thing when you think about it. This should be the moment when those rules are most important. If they serve public health and welfare, why are they being abandoned by governments? So that tells us both that the rules didn't serve their purpose and that a lot of rules exist. So it, again, it's just not a, a you know, theory or, or a, some sort of a libertarian uh, whim. Th this is reality. And every single day, entrepreneurs in the United States are confronted with this labyrinth of rules and regulations, all this red tape that constrain their ability to do wonderfully creative and entrepreneurial things. That's what needs to be reassessed. 
What I argue in the book is that if we don't do it rationally through sensible reforms, then essentially entrepreneurs kind of go their own way. They do an end run around broken regulatory and political systems. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. And in some cases, we should be thankful that it's happening. I mean, so, I mean, the, the the classic is you know classic recent example, obviously, uh, is you know Uber and Airbnb, and when those companies were, uh, I guess maybe you know maybe four or five years ago, those companies were pointed to as examples of how uh, regulation made it hard to start you know new businesses that meet meet an obvious need because if there wasn't a need, these companies wouldn't be growing so quickly. And I thought that was supposed to be the moment. That was going to be the deregulatory moment in which you could show people through these very vivid, understandable examples, uh, you know, companies that, you know, many people were using, younger people. You could finally show people this, this is the problem, is that these companies have had to scrap and fight, you know, local, local government just to get their businesses going. And it's, and then that moment just seemed to kind of, kind of pass. Uh, do you have any more? Do you have any greater? So what happened then? Well, that, did that let, turn out to be the deregulatory moment. And why should I be more confident now that will that this moment will turn into something? Yeah, p- part of the problem with the the sharing economy story and ride sharing in particular is that it involves Uber, and Uber's become a bit of a, a sort of a political pariah, if you will. They've certainly made some missteps, and uh, they had a founder who was quite flamboyant. Um, but the reality is, is that that really is. And there used very to be, remember important. the Uber Republicans. There were Uber Republicans. Right, right. People were so excited but, but, that finally you you could point to you could show young people this is why this overbearing regulatory state is bad and you didn't have to say it, it, other than like handing them a copy of Milton Friedman's free to choose you could show them something in their real everyday lives yeah but it, it, it's still an important story in this sense I mean let's take a step backwards Jim uh, to an era that we remember all too well and we've done research on which is the era before 2010 when economists political scientists and lawyers and others were writing about local transportation and hospitality or hoteling ro- rules and regulations and talking about what a complete anti-consumer cronious fiasco that world was and for the better part as I note in the book of about 70 years all of these researchers had documented thoroughly in a nonpartisan way that this needed reform, that most of these things, especially local taxicab commissions, were completely in the pocket of local taxicab owners and the whole licensing process and, 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 and medallion process and everything else was just a fiasco. Well, we tried and had all this evidence to prove this, and we got nowhere. For 70 years, we got nowhere. And then in 2010, along came Uber, Lyft, and other ride-sharing companies, and almost overnight, the entire equation changed. Why did it change? It changed because they made policy change part of their business model. They were essentially regulatory entrepreneurs. They basically went out of their way to show how they could change policy through technological activity and by mobilizing their customer base and turning them into the equivalent of almost citizen lobbyists who said, we want competition, we want choice. And so very quickly, the leverage in political negotiations about local taxi cab and transportation rules, and then by extension, hotel laws, changed because of the presence of these sharing economy companies. Today in the United States and really across the world, we have a different discussion about how to regulate these things. It does not mean, it does not mean that we have no rules and regulations. We absolutely do. 
but we also have choices that we never had before. And how did we get them? We got them because of evasive entrepreneurialism married up with technological change. If the first, the last or the last wave of evasion, uh, um, evasive entrepreneurship, you know, brought us these these companies that you like that we like to point to as examples of of entrepreneurs entrepreneurs having sort of beat these sort of anti you know call them anti business anti growth anti opportunity regulations. What what might the next wave of evasion um, evasive entrepreneurship bring us? You mentioned drones. What are some other examples? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. And in, in my book, in chapter two of it in particular, I go through a series of 10 case studies of various types of interesting technologies or new sectors where we're starting to see forms of permissionless innovation or evasive entrepreneurialism take hold. Um, I begin by talking about mobile medical applications and medical devices and, and services that are now built in to our smartphones and other types of technologies. I talk about 3D printing and the way that additive manufacturing is enabling people to uh, increasingly fabricate their own solutions to their needs, whether it's like prosthetic devices or other things. Um, I talk about uh, the world of food entrepreneurialism. Every, a lot of people are familiar with food trucks in urban areas, but food entrepreneurialism, or what's called the cottage food industry more generally, just average people making interesting concoctions and foods in their homes um, is, a, is a thing that's on the rise and that sometimes is heavily litigated at the, at the local level. Um, drones are an interesting case study. It's one that's regulated most heavily at the federal level, but there's also potential state barriers. But we could certainly see innovation there at the margin, I hope we do, um, uh, along the lines of what we're already seeing overseas in terms of like uh, medical deliveries through drones and other types of interesting innovations there. Um, unfortunately, it's being held back and a lot of our best and brightest innovators are flocking overseas because of the rise of innovation arbitrage, as I call it. They're going to wherever they're treated more hospitably. Um, so that's hopefully something that changes. Um, uh, various types of new micromobility and transportation services, uh, driverless cars have had some interesting case studies at the state level of being able to behave, behave more uh, in a permission fashion and innovating. Blockchain and uh, cryptocurrencies and decentralized markets, um, whole host of interesting technologies there as well. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And they're, they're example after example I provide in the book. And what's important about these examples is that they do not, they're, they're not completely separate. These things are, it's sort of a, a case of what's called comb combinatorial innovation and symbiotic innovation. All of these technologies are sort of building blocks for each other. A lot of it's built on the world of bits and the digital economy, but it's beyond that now even uh, with things like 3D printers and virtual reality and all sorts of things. So I, I, I'm excited about the potential for technological change to really start moving the needle on progress and changing how governments uh, treat entrepreneurialism and innovative activities. If we come back in five years, seven years, and we decide that it's sort of, you know, government struck back or these companies failed and we have not seen sort of this further, you know, blossoming um, of this kind of permissionless or, you know, evasive entrepreneur. Well, what will have gone wrong? Where will it have failed? Right. What will sort of the people who are against this, how will they have succeeded? Well, I love the way you put it, Jim, because it's exactly the phrasing I use in my book about uh, when the government strikes back. I, I often use Star Wars metaphors and analogies. And, um, you know, all, uh, very often evasive entrepreneurialism is like the rebel moment in like Star Wars. We have our Star Wars moment. 
But then inevitably the empire strikes back and there's an effort to quash and bottle up innovation. But what's really always interesting is what's the return of the Jedi moment look like? You know, do we find a balance in the force, if you will? And like I said, with uh, ride sharing and the sharing economy, I think we kind of have, it's not a perfect balance of the force, but we still have rules and regulations and taxes of the sharing economy, but we also allow choice and competition, right? So that, that's a game changer. We've moved the needle on that. We've certainly moved the needle on a lot of uh, health uh, and fitness and mobile medical applications in our smartphones. The FDA isn't trying to bottle all that up and say, it's a regulated medical device. Don't you dare put a fitness tracker in your smartphone, Apple or Google. You know, that's happening. And so are 3D printed prosthetics, and so are all sorts of other types of applications. Now, where could it go wrong? It could go wrong in those sectors where, again, we see technologies that are the most born into captivity, and they face, they're confronted with overlapping rules at the federal, state, and even local level that constrain their ability to innovate just across the board. This is where I think drones are really up against it in the United States. They face onerous uh, federal regulations for the Federal Aviation Administration, but then at the state, more specifically the local level, they're gonna face zoning regulations and all sorts of other local ordinances. Um, it's gonna be really hard for me to imagine that, that we see the kind of innovation there that we're seeing overseas. And so what will have gone wrong? The answer will be that they'll be confronted with just too many layers of red tape. In other sectors, I think it's the case of public choice economics coming back to haunt us and crony capitalism at its worst. I think you see a concerted effort in some sectors to, to, to thwart new types of innovation when it challenges business models. I talked about food entrepreneurialism. Um, if enough people are able to replicate in their own basements, you know, like lab grown meat or some sort of like 3D printed foods or something, you better believe there's going to be a pretty powerful response from the food industry. We already see that when they try to get their own labels on what we can consider milk or what we consider meat. And so much of these problems come down to the fact that our lawmakers just won't reassess archaic, crusty old rules and regulations, especially at the state and local level with things like occupational licensing laws, certificate of need laws, a whole host of other rules and regulations that only benefit uh, yesterday's entrenched interests. So that's where I think things can go wrong. It's the classic public choice story married up with a, with a regulatory inefficiency story and oh, unwillingness to reform either of them. And if that should happen, sort of the uh, the tricky part is that if we don't get the kind of, if we don't get certain innovations, well, in a way, we won't know what we have missed. Uh, right. If you go back, if you go back to where, you know, you know over the last you know, 30, 40 years, what, you know, what have we, what have we missed? I mean, how much, how much economic growth do you think we've missed? I know it's, you know, it's possible, just kind of just get your thoughts on it over the past three, four decades. It's because we haven't been as open as we might have been uh, toward innovation uh, in these sectors. Yeah, my, my colleague, uh, uh, Tyler Cowan, has a recent book called Stubborn Attachments, where he talks about this and tries to do some uh, work on the back of the envelope about, you know, what if we could have had a percentage point higher of GDP, or what if we could have had another percentage of productivity gain, and it results in enormous economic benefits, and that translates into human betterment. And this is the grand debate about innovation we're having in our time that so many other scholars like Deirdre McCloskey and Joel McCurr and, and uh, uh, Virginia Postrel and Matt Ridley and Calustus Juma and many others have discussed in their books, which is that the, if the fundamental driver of human improvements in human well-being and betterment is technological progress and change, then 
you really have to make sure you're unlocking more of those opportunities or else you're talking about undermining human welfare in the long term. And I'll, 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 I'll bicker with one thing you had to say, Jim, because you said like, well, we won't know what those foregone opportunity costs are um, in terms of growth and innovation. But mm -hmm. in some ways, we actually will. We actually will because we do live in a global world now where innovation arbitrage does take effect. And we certainly have seen the welfare effects associated with, for example, the opposite, which is what happened in Europe when they locked down the digital economy starting in the mid 90s when America opened our market up with permissionless innovation and they chose a precautionary principle approach. Well, the answer was they got no innovators. I often in my public speeches say, someone in the room, please tell me the name of any major digital economy innovator headquartered in the, in the European Union today. And I'm not kidding, most people will say something like Skype. I'm like, Skype's been owned by American companies for 20 years. You know, give me something else, Spotify. Okay, I'll give you Spotify. Can you give me anybody bigger than that or somebody more important? And the answer is no, you can't because innovation and its regulation had consequences and they didn't get the innovation they wanted in the European Union because of the policy choices they made. And this is exactly what America faces, but in other sectors, as we already identified from transportation to housing, to energy, to health, where we have some of the best and brightest innovators, but they're flocking overseas because of overly restrictive policies in the US. My guest today has been Adam Thier. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. 